Good evening, good citizens. It's wonderful to sit with y'all again. In this frightening time of COVID, I pray that you are staying positive while testing negative. My name is Clifford Brooks, and this is Dante's Old South. On tonight's show, we have poet and professor Lee Herrick and mathematician, author, and daredevil pilot, Cecilia Aragon. Along the way, you'll hear music from all over the globe. Before we begin, allow me to ask you to check out and hopefully support Autism Speaks and Mostly Mutts. And now, before our first guest, let's listen to All I Want Is You by Radio Lucent. Hey, pretty baby, if you hear sometime calling, let yourself in. I'm gonna say it, cause I've spent so much of my life now hiding from sin. If you let me whisper in your ear.
And first up on Dante's Old South, we have Lee Herrick, poet, professor, author, father, and husband. Lee Herrick, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. It is a pleasure to have you on board. As we start off the interview, um, I'm going to begin in the obvious spot and uh, ask you how you're staying sane in this time of COVID. How are you keeping your head down and keeping your eyes on the positive? Um, well, you know, it's. I think it's changed for me since March, right? I mean, I think the initial uh, shock of it was met with some preparations and do we have what we need if this thing is going to go a month or two right mm -hmm. and um you know I, i'm a professor so there were adjustments there um but you know i i i'd like to say that i live a pretty simple lifestyle without a lot of excess right and so i wouldn't say it's not been difficult right i mean this has been a the disaster in, in so many ways, but you know, Cliff, I'm I'm spending time with family. We go on a lot of walks, watching a lot of movies. Uh, initially, after eating about every potato chip that was ever made in every brand, I realized I need to uh, be a little bit wary of that. But you know, trying to keep it steady, staying healthy above all and really avoiding some of the toxic stuff that I think can exacerbate even some minimal anxieties, right? To try to keep it basic. That's at least how I've tried to make it through. Um, a lot of hope for people, a lot of people struggling. And so I hope that, that it'll turn the corner soon. That leads me to a natural second question then what's the philosophy that you follow to keep this calm like i feel like you just explained some of that but what's the overarching uh philosophy or mantra that you follow to to stay the path well um you know i like anybody i have my moments or even some foundational anger and some things that make me a little bit unsettled but you know, my, my birthday is about two weeks away. I'll, I'll be 50. And I say this only because if I do have any calm, I feel like it was hard won in a way. I mean, I, I had bouts with some pretty severe anxiety when I was younger. You know, I think a lot of that had to do with really large unanswered questions with my adoption and not realizing how those things unsettled me. And so it wasn't a conscious thing, but, you know, addressing some of those things, I think was probably the most significant thing in my life. But as far as maintenance and, and a general thing, I, for me, context always helps. You know, I mean, I think if something really troubling is occurring, I don't ever dismiss the trouble. I don't want to be naive. I don't ever dismiss the trouble but I do always try to contextualize it. And that's not to say, oh, somebody else has it worse because that's just another version of dismissing it. But um, it helps me, you know, I, I try to see people as connected. Um, I try to see other people's suffering as, as related to my own condition. You know, on a, on a pragmatic, li literal level, things like music, 
I love the water, as strange as that sounds. So any kind of, any body of water is peaceful to me. And just the belief in some, in some general faith, you know, and forgiveness, all those things help me. I feel better after that answer. <laughs> Every time I have this show, I, I love to, to, the answers because it's so often an angle I've never thought or haven't appreciated. With your philosophy, with your idea, the way you stay calm, the way the idea or the, the problematic issue of identity, the anxieties that it, that brought up, how do you articulate that in your poetry to be accessible? That's a good question. It, it's very difficult. I, I, all I can say is that I, I try to stay as true to, to the music in the body or as true to the trouble of the line or as true as I can to the poem and what I was experiencing as I can. And that's not to say I'm, I'm always writing something literal, but I think all we can do is, is craft the poem and think about the heart at the same time. And, and if it is accessible to a reader in the end, then, then that's a good thing. But I'm, I'm not really striving for accessibility as much as some kind of purity of a, or, or inside the poem. And I promised I wouldn't gush on this show, but I do want to, to make note that the reason that I ask you that question is that um, when I read your poetry, the unsettling moments and the, uh, the seriousness, the, the use of nature to lighten the mood, but uh, n I don't worry so much with what that symbolizes as much as like I can feel what it is that you're talking about. And it doesn't have to be exactly to my, to my strife. And just as you said earlier, when someone says, well, you know, someone else has it worse, well, it doesn't make what someone else is feeling any less. And it definitely sounds that way. Within my lifetime, uh, your poetry is, is, is some of the, in my opinion, the most pure, direct, succinct, deceptively simple. The, the, the fact that music has so much to do with your creative process, it's, it's, it, to me, it, it's, it's in the middle spaces of your poetry. Especially with, uh, and I, what I'll focus on now is your most recent book of poetry, uh, Scar and Flower. Uh, it was a year ago it came out, but it's, it's still new enough that I would, I definitely want people to know about it. Tell us what inspired that book and, and, and uh, what themes you tackle within it. Um, well, thanks, Cliff. Uh, so Scar and Flower came out, yeah, like you said, at the start of 2019. And I initially started writing that book about sound. There are quite a few poems with titles like um, What I Hear, When I Hear You in My Head, for example, that's one of the titles. And it was about the same time I realized that I have a hearing or sort of a, could be a different kind of condition, but it's related to hearing called misophonia, which really amplifies certain sounds and almost makes them unbearing at times. So I was trying to write about sound and auditory experiences and how I'm experiencing the world through that sense. But it was also about the time, you know, 2014, 15, 16, where uh, American gun violence was just really in the news and on my mind, particularly with mass shootings or, or police killings. So, you know, there are poems in the book that relate to Michael Brown, the Sandy Hook grade school shooting, uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, just devastating, devastating 
incidents. And so the first half of Scar and Flower is a lot about those things. It it talks about heavy topics like that and even some poems about some friends' suicides and things like that. So those were very difficult poems to write. It's probably the most difficult book I've ever written. Um, the second half of the book deals with how we navigate those things, how how people make it through. What amazed me the most and continues to amaze me about your work is that each book is a different Lee Herrick. Like you, you can you can read how you develop and mature as as you go. And you just addressed something that this book was the most difficult for you to write. Do you find that certain poems that are extremely difficult come out when it's time? That you, that's Were any of these ideas in your head in the previous books and thought, no, not now, I'm not ready? You know, I think that this, this book mostly was written around issues and incidents and, and experiences that I was experiencing at the time. I, I think, you know, my, my first book came out in 2007 and that was very searching and optimistic and things like that. And the second book, and I appreciate you mentioning that. I think the second book was very different and I, I was starting to come into my own a little bit more, um, with regard to politics and activism, but this book definitely is, is immersed in some of those things. And since we bring that up, we can tackle politics and our duty as artists with one question. And that is, Mr. Lee Herrick, what is your responsibility to your readers as an artist? My, my own mm -hmm. or a poet in general? Yours. Um, you know, I'm sure that I have responsibilities to the reader, but I, I really think of them more in terms of responsibility of the artist to himself or herself or, or themselves. And that is to be as true, again, not literal, but to be as pure and as in service and as open and as rigorous and as creative with the art as we can. And whatever that means for the writer or the poet at the time, will vary, but, but that's what I think of. That's what I think the art might want from us. And I think that's when writers writing is the best, um, whatever it might be. Uh, so yeah. And, and, you know, I can add that a lot of that has to do with being aware of our time. There are reasons I think some of the great books talk about the issues of the day. Those are the, some of the lasting ones. And so not that it has to be overtly political, but I, I think being conscious or mindful of our condition is related to good writing often. Every time you say stay true to yourself and true to the poem, I want to tear out of my seat because I found that there are two camps, which there are about everything. There are those who believe that uh, honesty is the rule, which I am firmly in, and then those who say, if you're going to lie, lie big. And again, it's, I know it's more of a taste kind of thing. Um, and the only reason I mentioned that, I'm not trying to force you into one or the other, but uh, the fact that you said it tw three times actually resonates with me. And I'd like to bring it out to our listeners that 
Tell us more about being honest in the poem. Well, what I, I don't mean being factually literal, right? Like mm-hmm. at 8 p.m. on a Thursday night, I walked to Scotty's Liquor. Not like that. Right. What, what I mean is um, maybe I can explain it this way. Uh, one of the things I, I like to encourage my poetry students to remember or to think about is uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing advice that I ever heard or read uh, was from the long-deceased Russian novelist Dostoevsky, whose writing advice was convict thyself. Convict thyself. Again, not in a, you know, I stole the sunglasses kind of way, but um, digging deeper, going there, um, finding the fire, whatever you want to call um, the thing I think that gets us more to something that's visceral mm-hmm. rather than something that leaves us wanting more from the writing. And that's always the goal, right? No, no poem yeah. or book can ever do that fully. And I'm not saying I do, but it's what I value in writing. And it's what I'm trying to do when I'm most in the poem. That's what I mean when I say be true to the poem. It's Maybe it's almost better to say be true to yourself. The technique behind the writing is something that I try to find out as much on this show as I can. And uh, one of the questions I enjoy the most is how do you approach editing? I mean, and how do you feel that that value, how that value fits into the overall score of poetry? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think editing well can go hand in hand with the extent to which a writer knows herself mm-hmm. and her habits. In, in other words, for me, I, I think I've written enough to know where I feel good in a poem and when, you know, some, maybe even some craft elements that I like to employ, but I also know where my weaknesses are. And so that's often where I'm looking first, right? Uh, like an athlete who knows she pulled her hamstring two months ago is going to wrap that and, you know, hopefully not be hampered by it playing, but she's going to be mindful of it. So for me in a poem, I don't know if I want to say what they are on the air publicly. <laughs> just, yeah, we'll just say they exist. That's they, it. How about that? Oh yeah. They, they exist. exist, right? For all of go. us. And yes, so sir. often those are the, those are the areas I'm looking for in the poem. Uh, I can have a tendency to get a little bit wordy. And so definitely cutting is one of the first things I'm looking to do. I try to resist to, I call it flag waving at the end of the poem. So I try to resist that because I don't want to, I don't want to do that necessarily. Um, But yeah, those are some of the things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of most when I'm editing. And speaking of technique and mentioning earlier that you're a professor, you teach at Fresno City College and at Sierra Nevada University in their MFA program. Uh, how does the how does the responsibility of uh, being an educator fit into your overall day? Does it help feed your writing? Do you, do, do, does the, the experience, does it help you detach from it? How does that work for you? That's a good question. Yeah, that's, that's you know, a lot of writers who teach talk about that, which they are first or most. And I don't really know, but 
this is my 25th year as a professor. And so it's, it's a regular part of my life just because it's my work and it's how I make a living, I suppose. But one of the things I think that I've gotten most that might inform my poetry from Fresno City College specifically is just the idea of uh, struggle and grit and, and work. Fresno is a medium-sized city probably, but it's the fifth largest city in California. Um, it's probably at around 50% Latinx and uh, you know, a lot of working class, and that's informed my, my poetry a lot. Uh, some of your listeners might know about Fresno's poets um, over the years, and, and that idea of work has really been a staple in some of those books. Um, Sierra Nevada University is very different. You know, Fresno City College is an open-entry, two-year college. It's about 25,000 students. Sierra Nevada University is a very different. I think it's around a thousand maybe students. Uh, beautiful, serene uh, campus right on the north shore of Lake Tahoe. So, and I and, and there I'm teaching graduate students, right? So that might be a little bit closer to what I'm thinking of and and writing and reading mm -hmm. um, with my own poetry, just because these are people in some cases who've already written books, but who definitely will in the future. And so, you know, working with the graduate students gives me a different sort of lens with education uh, and my, and my writing. You mentioned that you, um, you listen for the music in your work and you listen to music and you love music in general. What are you listening to right now? Like who's on the tip of your tongue right now? Ah, it's a good question. I, I always feel like I should have some newer bands at the ready. Um, sadly, the only one I can think of that I'm that I'm liking, although I don't know how much I, I like their newer stuff, but I like a band called Royal Blood, which is kind of a, you you, you know that two dudes, yeah, man. Yeah, I like I like a lot of that heavier stuff. Um, loved their first record. You know, a lot of what I listen to, though, is just some of the stuff I've always listened to. I, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of like Led Zeppelin. I think I told a friend once thinking I was way more of a fan than I than I probably am. I, I told him that I could probably list, probably say every lyric from every Zeppelin album. Um, but I could come close. Um Newer bands, though, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm always on the lookout, but it's um, a couple I'm listening to. An interesting question I like to throw out to poets is, what's the kinship between poetry and songwriting? Well, I, I think you, what, for me, the best poems and the best songs as, as a listener or a reader is when I'm so lost in it and feel so good in it that I almost lose track of time and that I'm experiencing something other than that thing. You know, I think there's something in great music for me. You know, I'm thinking about a band that I love like Radiohead where it's great at any time of the day or any mood, great music gives us something, some emotion, some lift, some companion, 
among, along with the despair or hope, whatever it is, you know, the, the, that's how I feel when I listen to Radiohead or things that speak to our anger. You know, I, I loved uh, early rap and groups like Public Enemy. So, and I think poetry does that too. I think there's some of my favorite poets, their work sustains me or lifts me at any time, but mostly it's that feeling of just being immersed in it and, and sort of viscerally taken over by it in the same way that a, a great film might make you feel or other kinds of art. But with, with music, this might be a whole other conversation for another time, but I just grew up going to live shows. And, and for me, there's, there's really nothing like live music. And so maybe that had something to do with my becoming a poet because Lord knows I can't sing or play an instrument very well. But yeah, there's a lot of kinship there. Before we get off, what I would love to talk about is the anthology that you just helped co-edit, The World I Leave You, Asian American Poets on Faith and Spirit. Tell us a little bit about that, please, sir. Sure. So The World I Leave You was published in March of this year, right when the pandemic came down. We're very proud of it. It's a great anthology. It has 62 contemporary Asian American poets in it, writing about faith and spirit from different vantage points and experiences. So different religions, different faiths. Uh, some are writing about doubt, but um, yeah, it's very exciting. It was published by Oars and Books. Publisher Luke Hankins was a pleasure to work with. And I think anyone who, who likes poetry or is interested in it, uh, whether they're especially um, interested in themes like faith and spirit or not, would enjoy it. It's, it's a great anthology, and, and we're really excited about it. And last but not least, tell us how we can find your books online and buy one of them, please, sir. Uh, well, you can go to my website. It's leeherrick.com, or you can find my books anywhere books are sold online, bookshop.org, or any other place, you know, your mm -hmm. local independence. But, um, yeah. Well, Lee Herrick, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, I am speechless. I think I've done well not to be as loud and excited as I want to be on this show about you being here. But, sir, you have been a joy to hear. And I hope to have you back soon. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Right. And for those who'd like to know more about Lee Herrick, by the time this episode is released, you can go to www.southerncollectiveexperience.com to find a link to the Blue Mountain Review to find out all and more you'd want to know about Mr. Lee Herrick. Up now... Just shy of our second guest, let's listen to Blues Claire by Django Reinhardt.
And next up on the program, we have Dr. Cecilia Aragon, a professor, author, daredevil pilot, and outdoor enthusiast. Cecilia, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Cliff, and thanks so much for having me on the show. I am ecstatic and don't even know where to start with you. I've got to say, without a doubt, you're the first of its kind in this uh, regard. You've made mathematics a way to beat fears and become a daredevil pilot. To help people understand exactly what that means, tell us how you use mathematical equations to face your fears. All right. So there is a technique in math called mathematical induction, and it's like the domino effect. You know how if you have a row of dominoes, you push the first one and it knocks over the next one. And then if you know if any domino falls, the one after it will also fall. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same method that you use in math to prove many really powerful things. And it turns out that this very simple technique also works really well for overcoming fear. So for me, when I first started learning to fly, well, you have to understand I was extremely timid. I had all sorts of phobias. I was scared of ladders. I was scared of shaking hands. I was scared of heights. I was even scared of elevators. So how did somebody like me learn to fly? Well, I first went for a ride in a small plane with a colleague. And I can tell you about that story later on if you want. I love it. Um, but I was terrified, but I knew I had done it once. So I knew I could do it again. Mm -hmm. And I actually decided to sign up for flying lessons after that because I wanted to get over my fears. I wanted to face something, face a lot of things in my life. And so I told myself, well, I'm, I know math and I know that if I do it once, I know I can do it the next day. And then if I do it any day, I can do it the day after. And through using that very simple technique, I went from being terrified of heights and flying and everything to being a member of the United States aerobatic team, flying loops and spins and rolls in front of millions of people and even winning a medal for the United States at the Olympics of aviation. You need your own commercial. You need a motivational <laughs> cassette tape and classes because I don't, I don't know, I, don't, I can't think of the whole time I'm sitting here going, who in the world can say, I couldn't even get in an elevator and I use math and now I've won awards with the Olympics for flying planes. Like that in itself makes you stop and step back. That segues for me into these times it's so applicable dealing with fear. It's a frightening time. Um, and shorthand, if you can, tell the listeners how you can apply your theory to their lives to beat their fears and get out and get around this, 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 this barrage of terror we're looking at. All right. So um, I love that question. May I tell a story to answer that? All day long. All right. Um, so um, I really feel that if there's anyone who has had something they've fantasized about doing, but that it's frightened them, but they wish they had the courage to do it because it sounds like so much fun. It doesn't have to be flying, it can be anything. It's worth facing your fear. It is worth it. Because not only will you get acceleration from it, but that experience will stretch you and it'll make you free to tackle the next great challenge in your life. And you never know when you'll get another chance to 
jump up and grab that next moment and change your life. So the story that I want to tell um, is, you know, how, what do you do when you're dealing with, I mean, a lot of us are facing really terrible situations right now, things that are just unfair. Um, it, you know, it's not, you know, really anyone's fault, but things are going kind of wrong with the pandemic and everything and people losing jobs. Um, so here is the story that I keep returning to. Um, so, you know, the story about the children's story about the little engine that could. Yes. Well, when I was trying out for the United States aerobatic team, I had the little airplane that couldn't. And I made it anyway. And here's how it went. So I was trying out and I was competing against pilots that had far more resources than I had. They had expensive, high performance planes. And I had, well, the little airplane that couldn't. Um, when, you complete, when you compete in aerobatics, you're required to do a certain sequence of maneuvers. And when I showed up at the contest and saw the sequence that I had to fly that day, I knew by the laws of physics, my plane was not capable of flying those maneuvers. And I remember going back to my hotel room that night and just despairing. I thought, I'm just gonna give up. Um, this sport isn't for me. It's physically impossible for me to compete with the plane I have. But then I remembered how my dad used to teach me math. And I would get stuck on math proofs when I was a child. And what he would say to me is, don't give up. There's always a way you can think of it. And so I thought to myself, okay, if my dad thought I could do it, I can do it. So I looked at the problem again. And I realized what I needed to do was maximize my score in the contest. Hey, that's a math problem. So I came up with a mathematical algorithm that allowed me to come up with workarounds for each of my plane's weaknesses. And I could maximize my score. So the next day I went out and I used that algorithm and I flew the plane exactly the way I imagined it. And I didn't get a perfect score but I got the best possible score I could get in my little airplane and I made the US aerobatic team. This is the most uplifting moment of my <laughs> 2020 for me. I think I need to go do something really important when we stop recording. I'm serious. Yeah, so now, yeah, I, I mean, so this is so cool. So I wanna tell, the thing is some of these people might say, well, this is math. Can I use math to do th that? And I wanna say that it doesn't have to be math because everybody has something they're really good at, something they love. And that something can help you achieve anything in your life. All right, so I want, you know, I tell people when I talk to students today, I say, what is the something that you're really good at? And know what it is and use it. There's an enormous amount of this enthusiasm and truth, struggle and triumph in the book you've just written. Tell us about your book and how it fits into this whole process. All right, thank you. So my book is called Flying Free, My Victory Over Fear to Become the First Latina Pilot on the U.S. Aerobatic Team. 
Brilliant. And it's the story of how a timid, fearful daughter of immigrants who had all these terrible phobias overcame her fears to become the first Latina pilot on the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Team. Why did you feel like this book was necessary to write? What's the message that set you down and said, I need to pen this? So I have run into so many people today who dream of doing things, but they stop themselves because of fear or insecurity about their own abilities. You know, young women who want to be scientists, but who tell me, oh, but I'm not good at math. Um, you know, people, Latinas like me, who, who have been who have been told overtly or subliminally, you're inferior. Anyone really who's been told by a screwed up system that they are not good enough. I want people to read this book and feel activated to change, to change themselves and to change the world around them. Best answers ever, best answers ever. Best answers. You make this so easy, I'm serious. Now, again, I wanna scoot back around and talk about this again and hammer this point home. Obviously, we've gone over. You overcame many fears to learn how to fly, but what made you decide to start flying? Oh, okay. I love, thank you for that question. Um, so I'll tell another story. Love it. Um, about the first day that I made that decision to start flying. So I was, I was 25 years old and I was working as a software developer in Silicon Valley and I felt like I was not qualified. I felt like I was an imposter, that I didn't belong here. Everybody else was smarter than me. And I was living a very narrow life at the time. I was still extremely fearful and I wasn't taking any chances in anything in my life. Um, and I was even scared to drive to work, just, just to let you know how bad it was. Um, and one of my colleagues, came up to me one day in the machine room and said, um, hey, how would you like a ride in a small airplane? And he acted like this was a great honor for me. And I was like, uh, no, I don't want to die. Um, but then I realized that my life had been becoming so narrow that actually my spirit was suffocating. And I realized in that moment that just this once, I had to say yes. And so I went to the airport the next Saturday and this plane was this tiny four seater and I was terrified when I saw it. It looked like a toy. <laughs> what did I get myself into? This is a mistake. But I went ahead with it because I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of my coworker. That was the only reason. And then um, we took off and it was so beautiful. This was the San Francisco Bay Area, and the sun glittered on the bay like a million gold coins, and the waves against the cliffs looked like lace. It was gorgeous, and my friend even let me handle the controls. Then suddenly, he tossed this map at me and asked me for a specific coordinate. And his body language seemed to be saying to me that our lives would depend on whether I answered his question correctly. So I had no idea how to read an aviation map. I mean, I was totally clueless. And of course I was afraid. So I froze up and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, 
I am going, we are both going to die unless I figure out this question. Of course, that wasn't true. But his body language seemed to be saying that. So um, then it hit me. He's asking for a number. I know numbers. I can handle that. So I figured it out, and I gave him the coordinate. And then when I looked at him, he had this grin on his face, like he knew that I was feeling this joy and exhilaration. And that's when I knew that I belonged there, up in the sky. So again, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I was terrified of flying. I was the last person in the world anyone would have thought would become a pilot because that mm -hmm. was so far out of my comfort zone. But it made all the difference in my life. It changed me and enabled me to overcome lots of other fears. You know, because if you, after you pointed your airplane at the ground at 250 <laughs> miles an hour, you know, doing talking in front of a group of people or doing a radio interview <laughs> doesn't seem that bad. This is the sort of thing that I never would have been able to do before. But the flying gave me the courage to do so many other things and my entire life opened up because of that decision I made that one day to face my fears. So I really think that whatever people are afraid of, you really need to just give it a try because it, if I could go from, yeah, being scared of elevators to a member of the United States aerobatic team, anybody can go from what they're doing now to reach what they truly dream of. Now, Cecilia, I'm gonna have to call you out just for a moment here. It's just NPR, don't, don't stress. The way that you changed the eloquence and the detail and the poetics, the way you talked about that moment, the way the seed looked, the way the million gold coins. I've got to ask, well, no, outing you as a poet, don't know if you're aware of this, but you're now dubbed and I'm one, so bam, here's the stamp. <laughs> Tell us, do you have any favorite poets or, or musicians that, that, that get you into that, that creative space? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I love poetry. Um, so I love... Um, so I love Marge Piercy. Mm -hmm. I love um, Louise Glick. Yes. I read her before she became yes. a Nobel Prize winner. No. Averno um, is awesome. I agree. Yeah. I, agree. Yeah. I love um, T.S. Eliot. I love uh, Denise Levertov. I, I actually have a lot of favorite poets because, okay, you get my, my uh, secret here. When I was, you know, in high school, I wrote a lot of poetry. I, I knew it. Poetry. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. All right, go ahead. Sorry. I even won second place in a high school poetry contest. But I think I think my prose is better than my poetry. Um, but you never know. Maybe right. I will take on a new challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. How about that? Now back to your book because I want to I want to I want to wrap this in a bow about that. Uh, tell us something that you feel particularly proud of with your book. All right, probably the most the proudest moment I had was after I had come down from my flight at the World Aerobatic Championships, and it had been a beautiful day, and I knew I knew in my heart that I had flown better than I'd ever flown before. And I came down 
and I was representing my country and my family was all around, you know, my husband, my in-laws, my parents were all there to congratulate me. And um, after that, I got to stand on the, on the podium while they played the national anthem. And even thinking about it now brings tears to my eyes because I was so proud and so happy. You see, my parents are immigrants and they became naturalized citizens and, and they were so proud of me that I could represent their adopted country and could do so well to win a medal for the United States. Cecilia, um, we're gonna have to have you back. We're gonna have to have you back on this show. I mean, it, it's the, the, the boxes you open uh, and you do so with no pomp and circumstance, no airs, it's absolutely accessible. And, and the kindness that you exude, we need more of that in this world. Thank you. Before I let you go though, tell us about your book again, the title, where it is and how we can buy it. So my book is called Flying Free, My Victory Over Fear to Become the First Latina Pilot on the U.S. Aerobatic Team. It is available in bookstores and libraries everywhere. Uh, your local bookstore will have it or can order it because it has a nationwide distribution. And I love supporting libraries. Um, it's available now in many libraries, but if it's not there, request it. And um, it's available in ebook form, hardcover, and audiobook. Outstanding. Y'all, go get your hands on this book now. Dr. Cecilia Aragon, we're going to have you back. This is a promise. It's been an honor. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much, Cliff. It's been a real honor speaking with you and so much fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. I can't thank y'all enough for tuning in. I want to give a deep debt of gratitude to our guests, Lee Herrick and Cecilia Aragon. Don't forget to check out and support Mostly Mutts as well as Autism Speaks. Please indulge me before I sign off to read a poem, Orchid Incident, from my first book, The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics. Orchid Incident. Evidence of a wicked man is in this woman's bath. Her lover's been long kicked out. She can be seen through one window. Condensation obscures her. A leg crests, then stretches forward. A bottle of rum, one orchid on a silver tray. Shot glass thrown back three times. Beneath a bare bulb, she hums as Strauss conducts metamorphosis. Wound around her ankle is a green dragon tattoo. Y'all, God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving. And don't leave before you hear The Message Continues by Nubia Garcia. Good night and be well.